Good afternoon. Welcome to CME. There's no such uh, commercial support for today's activity. Speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. If you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. If you have any questions, please enter those in the Q&A chat and we'll be happy to ask those at the end of the presentation. It is my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Miriam Anwar. She is currently a PGY3 internal medicine resident in NGHS and will be a fellow for the palliative hospice program here at NGHS. She attended medical school at National Medical College, Karachi, Pakistan, and moved to Georgia after marriage. Her medical interests include preventative medicine with special interest in palliative care. Out of medicine, Dr. Anwar enjoys traveling, hosting her friends, cooking, volunteering for different causes, DIY home projects, and she enjoys swimming and being around nature and admits that Georgia has some of the best waterfalls, parks, and hiking. Join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Anwar. Thank you so much for that introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. My introduction has changed from when I started residency to what my interests are right now. So today, as for my grand round, I'm gonna talk about palliative care with focus on early palliative care. I do not have any financial and professional disclosures. We're gonna cover some objectives, which is understanding early palliative care and recognizing and identifying patients that benefit from this reviewing some randomized control trials, meta-analyses, um, what is hospice care, and then to discuss hospice and non-hospice survival. So the outline will be this way, palliative care, the major domains, the interprofessional teams, the randomized control trials, what are the challenges, what are our opportunities, what is hospice care, what are some of the misperceptions of hospice, and what is hospice and non-hospice survival. So how do you define palliative care? It's an approach that improves the quality of life of patients and their families that are facing the problems associated with life-threatening illnesses. And how do we do that? Prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and assessment and treatment of pain and other problems, whether it's physical, psychosocial, or spiritual. So palliative care is based on the needs of the patient, not so much on the patient's prognosis. And it's appropriate at any age, at any stage in a serious illness, and it can be provided along with curative treatment. So who can provide palliative care? I'm first gonna talk about what is primary palliative care. And this is the current me. It's clinicians who are not palliative care subspecialists. These are internists, family medicine doctors, cardiologists, oncologists, and those who care for seriously ill patients. Then what is subspecialty palliative care? These are the palliative care subspecialists who work alongside that team, which is going to be the future me in about a month's time. So who can provide palliative care? And this is some of the things. So primary palliative care will basically manage physical symptoms, which are basic pain management, basic management of other physical symptoms, management of adjuvant pain relievers, 
Um, but what will subspecialty do? Management of refractory pain, management of other refractory symptoms. You know, the people that are on higher opioid doses, then you need methadone transition. Then what primary palliative uh, care skills does, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual aspects. And your subspecialty is going to manage the more complex depression, anxiety, grief, and all of that. But who can assist with palliating? And this is basically who can care for someone? Anyone can care for someone, right? But there are certain people that offer medical care and out of which there are certain people that can prescribe. So anybody here can assist with palliative, uh, palliating, which is physicians, the APPs, the nurses, social worker, pharmacists, medical assistant, and also over there, the dietitian, nutritionists, family members, everyone. But who needs palliative care assessment? And there are criterias um, at, the type of, at the time of admission. Um, there's primary criteria, there is secondary criteria. Primary criteria are basically global indicators that represent the minimum that hospitals should use to screen patients that are at risk of unmet palliative care needs. If you have a question like, you would not be surprised that the patient is gonna die within 12 months, um, then think about palliative. Frequent admissions, admissions that are prompted by difficult to control physical or psychological symptoms, complex care requirements, think about uh, getting them assessed. What is the secondary criteria? These are more specific indicators of a high likelihood of unmet palliative care needs and should be incorporated into a system-based approach to patient identification if possible. And these are basically admission from a long-term care facility or a medical foster home older patients, cognitively impaired patients, patients on chronic home use, out of hospital cardiac arrest, current or past hospice program enrollees. And what are the components of the assessment? Um, you look at the pain and symptom assessment. Are there any distressing physical or psychological symptoms? You look at the social and spiritual assessment, understanding of illness prognosis, treatment and options identification of patient-centered goals of care and transition of care post-discharge. These were the components and assessment of anyone in general, but the NCCN, which is the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, has their own criteria for palliative assessment for their um, cancer patients. So characteristics of the patients are basically those that have limited options for treatment, those that are at high risk of poor pain control or refractory pain, which can be all kinds of pain, neuropathic, rapid escalation of opioid dose, history of substance abuse, then those that have high symptom burden or distress score, those that are in intensive care unit admission, those with cognitive impairment, multiple comorbid conditions, those that have communication barriers. These were the patient characteristics. There are certain social circumstances or issues that are also related, and that's basically folks that have limited access to care. This is again, cancer patients, familial factors that are limitations of the family caregiver, family discord, history of intensely dependent relationships. Then there are some financial limitations, unresolved grief or multiple prior losses and spiritual or existential crisis. So patients meeting these criteria should be evaluated by their principal hospital clinicians to address some of the basic domains of palliative care. This slide talks about the major domains of palliative care, and I like to group it into four things. 
where the first thing is assessing and treating the physical symptoms, which is your pain, your function, um, wounds, and then psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual aspects of care that, talks, that takes care of their values, beliefs, rituals, um, financial issues, relationships, um, end-of-life care, loss, and grief. So when to place a referral for palliative? It's for problems that challenge the capabilities of the primary team, and those are when there is highly burdensome or refractory symptoms like pain, depression, anxiety, confusion, fatigue, shortness of breath, nausea, diarrhea, constipation. In all, this is a very multidimensional need. So think about this entire pie chart as the patient. They have physical needs, emotional, social, spiritual, and emotional, uh, informational. So physical is your symptoms, physical symptoms like pain, shortness of breath, nausea. Emotional is the anxiety, depression. Social aspects is, again, the family, uh, caregivers, living situation. Spiritual is their faith, belief. And then information, like what is the prognosis of their disease? Now, taking that circle and putting it right here in the center, which is the patient, and around it are the families and the caregivers. And around it is the entire team, the interdisciplinary uh, approach or the interprofessional team. And I want you to pay attention to the colors. So physicians that are on your right end, they have a little bit of red where they'll manage the physical um, symptoms, then a little bit of blue where they provide with information and then a side of orange, which is the emotional. When you look at the social workers, it's all green because they're taking care of the social aspect. When you look at the case manager, it's blue and green, so information and social. So that's how I want you to pay attention to these colors. In all, the focus is there's leadership, there's a unified message. We all have different personalities, but there's a common goal with shared responsibility. This is again a different chart explaining the same things that the patient and around the um, rectangles are all the symptoms. So what has been the timeline of hospice and palliative care? Cicely Saunders came up with this term hospice care and I think it was 1967. And then uh, started with palliative care unit, inpatient care units, outpatient palliative care. And when they started off, the patient population lasted for like days when it was just hospice. But when we started introducing palliative care in the um, inpatient, outpatient, we saw that the prognosis or the patient population lasted from initially days to days to weeks, weeks to months, and hopefully months to years. And initially it was all emotion-based, but then we started gathering data, it became experience, and now we have evidence. So we are at a stage where there's evidence to show um, that it works. And based on all the evidence, we can see that hospice care is close to end of life, palliative care is close to the advanced disease, and supportive care is basically close to the earlier stages of disease and goes all the way to the advanced disease stage. It's also a better term um, as well. So there have been a number of trials that have been document, documenting that palliative care work, but I'm gonna talk about some randomized controlled trials that tell us that early palliative care also works when it comes about quality of life, symptom control. So I'll be talking uh, about a few of these trials 2009 onwards. 
But before I do that, I want to talk about some assessment scores. So CCI is a Charleston comorbidity index. It's a measure of comorbidity for patients with cancer, and it generates a weighted score based on the presence of various medical conditions. The ECOG score, which a lot of you might be familiar with, is basically um, Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group Score. A score of zero indicates fully active at pre-disease performance. One is ambulatory but restricted and hence four. The FACET score is functional assessment of chronic illness. Higher numbers represent better quality of life. Quality is basically quality of life at end of life care. And again, higher numbers represent better quality of life. ESAS, those who have rotated in palliative knows about this score, which is Edmonton System Assessment um, System. And its scale ranges from zero to 90, but here the higher numbers represent worse symptom control. Then we have FAMCARE and CARE MIS. So starting with the randomized controlled trials, there was a trial done by Temel, was published in 2010. This was an interdisciplinary trial um, in the outpatient setting, center composing of um, lung cancer patients. There were about 151 patients that were randomized into integrated palliative care and routine oncology care. With the study endpoints being primary outcome that is doing quality of life at 12 weeks, and the secondary outcomes were psychological distress at 12 weeks, quality of end-of-life care, resource utilization, and documentation of resuscitation status in the chart. And what did it show? When compared to standard care, early palliative care was associated with a better fact lung score, better trial outcome index, lower rates of depression, less aggressive end-of-life care, and improved documentation of resuscitation status. This was one of the studies that had shown a survival advantage that the earlier studies haven't produced. And if you let, look at the x-axis, that's the number of months. Y-axis is the patient surviving. The blue curve is the standard care. And the red curve is the early palliative care. What we know so far is that there's no study showing that early palliative care shortens in any way survival of the patient. This is another graph from the same study. And this is what it shows that patients that were assigned to early palliative care were more likely to retain, develop an accurate assessment of their prognosis over time. So it's the yellow bar with early palliative care. And to your right on this chart is the right top. That's the pie chart where patients that were receiving early palliative care and who reported an accurate perception of their prognosis were less likely to receive chemotherapy at the end of their life. They had a better understanding of their disease and there was less inaccurate prognosis. The other study, um, the trial, randomized control trial was by Zimmerman published in 2014. And here it, they had 461 patients with metastatic GI, lung cancer, breast cancer, and they were randomized again into palliative care consultation and follow-up and routine oncology follow-up. I would like to mention this, these are all interdisciplinary outpatient clinical trials. Outcomes were measured at one month at baseline, one month and three months. And again, they looked at quality of life, symptom intensity, and communication based on the scores. This was from that study. And if you focus on the p-values on both the ends at three months and at four months, it showed that there was better quality of life, better symptom management and control. Then there was a randomized control trial with just physicians only clinics. And this was with pancreatic cancer patients. Maritoni did it and it was in 2016, I think published. 
So 207 advanced pancreatic cancer patients within eight weeks of diagnosis, their ECOG score was zero to two. They were randomized into integrated palliative care with the physicians only and routine oncology care. And again, they studied the endpoints at 12 weeks, quality of life, psychological distress, quality of end of life care, and also survival. And it showed that systematic early palliative care has better quality of life, especially for symptom burden and physical components of quality of life. Again, the highlighted yellow portions. There was another trial that Temel did published in 2016, again, interdisciplinary outpatient clinics. And this time they had lung and non-colorectal GI cancer patients, 350 patients, ECOG score again, zero to two, randomized into integrated palliative care and routine oncology care. Again, they studied at 12 and 24 weeks, the quality of life, psychological distress using the HADS and the PHQ-9 score that we do very commonly in our clinics and quality of end of life care. And again, it showed that for patients with newly diagnosed incurable cancers, early integrated palliative care, improved quality of life and other outcomes. This is again saying the same thing. Then there was a trial by Gridson in 2016 that basically had inpatient consultation for patients that come to the ED um, with advanced cancer. They had about 136 patients within the advanced cancer group and they were again divided or randomized into inpatient palliative care consultation and routine care. And they noticed that there is improvement in quality of life without shortening the survival, but they did not see any statistical difference between depression, admission to the ICU and discharge to hospice. Now, these are patients that are coming to the ED. So a lot has happened before they've come there. So that's why there's no statistically significant difference in these three things. This is the same. Sorry about this. Okay. Then there was a study by El Jawari in 2016 that also talks about inpatient consultation for stem cell transplant patients. There were about 160 patients with hematologic malignancies that were needing the stem cell transplant, and they were divided into inpatient, like randomized into inpatient palliative care and routine oncology care. Again, primary outcomes with quality of life at two weeks. Secondary outcomes were again, psychological distress, symptom burden. And I know this is just repetition again and again, but I wanna tell you that there is less decline in quality of life when you get early palliative care, less increase in depression symptoms, less increase in system burden and less increase in anxiety. Another study that had AML patients, um, there were about 160 adults with AML randomized into inpatient palliative care and routine oncology. Now we're moving more towards inpatient consultation. And in this randomized control trial, it says that um, they noticed that integrated palliative and oncology care had substantial improvements in quality of life, psychological distress and end of life care. This was the chart that showed the effectiveness in a snapshot. Then this was one of the last trials, which was the interdisciplinary outpatient clinic trials, patients with advanced solid tumors, about 297 patients, again, randomized into palliative and routine oncology care. And um, again, showed better quality of life. 
So this here brings us to the systematic review that compared palliative care and usual oncologic care versus usual care alone. And these, this, because this is a systematic review, the first um, row is about 15 studies, 2,355 patients, then 11, 12, five to seven. These are the number of studies that were there. And again, focusing on the colors. So green is more palliative care. It says your quality of life, your symptoms improve. Orange is basically no statistically significant difference between the palliative care group um, and usual oncologic group. Generally speaking, looking at this, it says that when you have integrated palliative care, quality of life improves, symptoms improve, but survival does not generally improve, but it does not deteriorate. This was from a, a snapshot of the outpatient models that I spoke to you about. And here I wanna focus on the interdisciplinary where you have the entire team that is doing um, palliative care versus the MD only or the APN led, RN led or primary palliative care, which is the current me, not the future me. And um, again, the light green is basically favoring palliative care. And you will see that it's more concentrated when it's the interdisciplinary approach where your symptoms are better controlled, depression better controlled, patient satisfaction is also better, communication end of life. You'll see more green when it's interdisciplinary versus when it's either just MD only or APN led, you'll see less when it's RN led. And we don't have enough data or evidence that just primary palliative care helps. I stumbled upon this study when I was doing this, doing this presentation and looked at models of integration of specialized palliative care with oncology, fairly recent in April of 2021. And they looked at studies, RCTs meta-analysis from North America, USA, Canada, and also European. And why did they do this? Because there was evidence from the RCTs and meta-analysis that early integration of specialized palliative care improves symptoms and quality of life for patients with advanced um, cancer. They used various models of early integration. They used uh, where palliative clinics are freestanding or they're embedded outpatient clinics. Freestanding in the sense we have right now where we have separate, right sorry. sorry about that. We have um, palliative care, which is freestanding. These are the clinics that we have right now. And then there are certain uh, places where palliative is embedded. So when you go to your oncologist, there is a palliative clinic right there. And during COVID, um, telehealth also became a prominent model for palliative care de um, delivery, but we don't have enough evidence right now. Again, they all focused on, it was a timely team-based collaborative uh, effort focusing on the domains of care and then the principles of care. And this is from the study, like I mentioned, USA, Canada, Italy, Denmark, and Belgium. And um, they looked at advanced lung cancer, GI cancers, all these different studies. And what I wanna talk about is whether it was palliative care, which is freestanding clinics, or was embedded in an oncology clinic. They all noticed that the outcomes and the result, the outcomes were basically quality of life, healthcare utilization, survival, um, depression, and the result was generally the same, improved quality of life, less depression, less aggressive care, improved end of life care. This was a data, and this was before um, COVID, 
because this was looking at the telehealth. Um, so even prior to COVID, they showed that study um, where it was basically USA, South Korea, and the Netherlands, and um, patients with mostly advanced cancers, so, um, stage four solid tumor cancers, where they were provided with palliative over the telephone. Um, but in 2017, they started using the iPads. And uh, again, the outcomes were quality of life, symptom intensity and mood, and the results were improved quality of life in general. So conclusion, looking at the RCTs in North America and Europe, there is benefit of integrating specialized palliative care, whether it's embedded or freestanding clinics, but this model is resource intensive and is less feasible in practice, especially where oncologist initiated referrals still predominates. So um, they have started working on this automatic, there are trials currently going on on automatic referral based on symptoms and other triggers. Um, they're also working on the incorporation of telehealth uh, right now since COVID, but the gold standard for integration of palliative care into oncology will be one that ensures broad access to primary palliative care for all patients while providing timely targeted specialized care for those in great need. Some of the challenges that we have are shortage of palliative care specialists, lack of knowledge of palliative care still exists with some providers. There are some regional, socioeconomic, racial influences that, acts, that um, provide, uh, that influence the access to palliative care. Then there are certain care team members, they may be reluctant to discuss palliative care because they feel that, they fear that patients will lose hope and that there are many patients that are still unaware of palliative care services. So what are some of the opportunities? We can increase the access to primary palliative care. We can develop communication strategies. We can educate all providers and staff about palliative care, what we're doing right now, and increase patient satisfaction while reducing provider burnout. This comes to, and I'm just gonna briefly touch the topic of hospice because this is also interlinked. So what is hospice? It's a care that provides medical care and support services to a patient with terminal illness as well as to their families and caregivers. Their main focus is quality of life and their main philosophy is to achieve comfort and quality of life until death. It's again, a comprehensive interdisciplinary team where they'll manage the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual aspects. And it can be provided in patients' private home, hospitals, nursing home, assisted living facilities, and also freestanding hospice inpatient facilities. It was coined by Saunders, Cecily Saunders in 1967 at St. Christopher's in London. And about 10 years later, National Hospice Organization was formed. And a few years later, President Ronald Reagan signed into the law, the Medicare Hospice Benefit, making hospice one of the original risk-assuming health entities. So how do you differentiate between palliative and hospice? Palliative care can be provided at any stage of the disease. And it is concurrent with, it can be concurrent with curative treatment. But hospice care is when you have six months or less prognosis and it excludes curative treatment. This brings us to some common questions and misperceptions about hospice. Is hospice a place? No, it's not a place, it's a plan of care. It's basically can be provided at the patient's home, nursing home, inpatient um, settings or facilities. What type, of, what type of treatments can patients receive while being cared for by a hospice program? Again, the physical symptoms, the spiritual, the emotional symptoms, all of that. Can a patient leave a hospice program? 
yes, they can leave the hospice program when you have newer development in treatment or when they're not meeting the criteria, but can they join back the hospice program depends if they still meet that criteria of prognosis of six months or less and other things. Do patients have to be actively dying to receive hospice services? No, patients do not have to be actively dying to receive hospice care, but they have to show a functional decline and have to have an estimated prognosis of six months or less. None of us have a crystal ball to tell us when you have prognosis of six months or less, but there's data to support that. Do patients have to be DNR to receive hospice? In the United States, patients are not legally required to be categorized as do not resuscitate. What, if, what happens if a patient is still alive after six months? And trust me, it does happen. About 21% of hospice beneficiaries live longer than six months. And those are folks that are mostly non-cancer patients, which have chronic debilitating illnesses like dementia and frailty. And again, they're uh, periodically assessed by the hospice staff to see if they're still meeting the um, eligibility criteria. Does hospice care hasten death? Some patients fear that entering hospice care hastens death or shortens life, but the prospective studies do not show that. Will I have to give up my primary care doctor and specialist? And this actually happened with a patient that I was seeing um, in my primary care clinic. Uh, where they had enrolled into hospice and they were wondering if their PCP would have remained the same. And to that, it's not a misperception. You can still follow that patient, but it's more like shared decision-making and you have to let them know that towards the end of life, you need to have a provider that is more apt in training uh, or is trained to help you with those symptoms at that time, which a primary care provider might not be able to. So this is the last study I'll be doing, which is comparing hospice and non-hospice patient survival among patients who die within a three-year window based on this widespread belief that even some healthcare providers have that medications that are used to alleviate symptoms may hasten death in hospice patients. But amongst hospice providers, that it's, we know that hospice might extend some patient's life. So this was a study that uh, study the difference of survival periods of terminally ill patients between those using hospice and not using hospice. And they looked at five types of cancer in CHF patients basically. And for the six patient populations combined, they noticed that the mean survival was 29 days longer for hospice patients than for non-hospice patients. And the mean survival period was also significantly longer for patients with CHF, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and marginally significant for colon cancer but it was not significant in breast cancer or prostate cancer patients. So across the group studied, hospice enrollment is not significantly associated with shorter survival, but for, certainly terminally, for certain terminally ill patients, hospice is associated with longer survival times. And these are the graphs to support that, the CHF, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and colon cancer. These graphs suggest that patients who die on hospice live on an average 29 days longer than those who die without it. So what do we know so far? Early palliative care by MD specialist-led team reduces symptom burden. Early palliative care by MD specialist-led team improves quality of life. It improves or does not reduce survival and it also saves money. What does not work? Very simple interventions by one or few disciplines, like one or two calls, one or two outpatient visits, 
there's not enough data or evidence. There's no evidence of primary palliative care, which is the current me, subspecialty is the future me, and single interventions, which are just managing one symptom, not the whole person or the patient in general. And why do patients feel better and perhaps live longer with early palliative care access? There is improved symptoms and function that increases the adherence to more cancer treatments. Poorly managed symptoms and distress shortens life and palliative care spares, spares the patient toxic and inexpensive treatments that could shorten life. In conclusion, palliative care is complex, but we can all work together to make the patient's suffering less by prompt and appropriate referrals. So interdisciplinary approach, timely approach and personalized care. I think we have time. So I, there's a little video that I wanted to show. You are a bridge. It's true, or at least it's a good analogy. When you're healthy, when the bridge is sound, you can handle anything. Cars, trucks, trains, all the bumps of life, no problem, you are set. But if you're facing a serious health issue, something like kidney disease, lung disease, or cancer, the bridge starts to falter, cracks appear, and pretty soon it's hard to withstand all that traffic. Traffic that includes your own medical treatment, and that's where palliative care comes in. Palliative care is a specialized form of medical care specifically designed for people with serious illnesses. Its main goal is to improve your quality of life by providing relief from the symptoms, pain, and stress that are an inevitable byproduct of both the disease and the medical intervention. In short, palliative care provides support for your bridge. And when a bridge is in trouble, there is nothing better. Now, palliative care, just like construction, is a team effort. It takes doctors, nurses, social workers, and other specialists, all working together with your physician to realize that extra layer, the layer that can make all the difference. It's a treatment method that makes sense at any stage of life and at any stage of an illness, because it's never too late to lessen the burden. So next time someone you care about is facing a serious illness, remember this bridge analogy, and be sure to consider the enormous potential of palliative care. These are my references. Thank you everyone and special thanks to Dr. Pickett and Dr. Mahmood. That's the end. We have a we have a question online. Can you hear me? Yes. For those of us who are non-providers and have aging parents who we believe are ready for palliative care, what do you recommend when the parent's provider isn't interested in pursuing palliative care and tells them they're not ready? And the parents are um, 89 and 83, and the um, father is completely dependent on um, the mother. Okay, so that's a good question, great question. And it all depends on the kind of illnesses or the conditions that the patients have or their parents have, uh, because there are certain um, diseases that will need palliative care based on their symptoms. Like what are their symptoms? Like if I meant, um, is it uncontrolled pain? Is it emotional symptoms like depression, anxiety, 
or what are the social barriers that they're having. If they have any of those, then yes, they do need palliative care assessment. We have other questions for Dr. Anwar. Let's see if there's any more online. Yes. Hey, I have a question. I said nicely done. Having read a lot of those articles, that is a really, really good, incredibly fast summary. Um, one of the things I was curious about, when you did the pancreatic cancer and you were talking about the MD, and if you don't know this, it's fine. You talked about the MD had a master's and I got the feeling that maybe it, the MD was kind of like a, he wasn't certified or something. Did he have like a dual degree? Like maybe he had a counseling degree? Or something. I have no idea. It was called. Who was in there? Which one was it? Was it by Zimmerman? It was on the pancreatic cancer one. I just had. It made me think that he had some other training. Okay, I will look that up. Okay, no worries. Uh -huh. It made it made it seem like he had some other different training. This one, pancreative care. Yeah, master's degree, but not accredited. Like maybe he was at. Okay, but but it, they do say a physician, so it has to have some kind of degree. Yeah, I, it made me think that maybe he had like oh. some sort of counseling background too. All right, we'll look that up. Any, Any other, other questions? questions? Yes. Just a moment. Thank you so much, great presentation. Um, one question I had for you, you had mentioned, obviously palliative care encompasses all aspects of their care, spiritual, physical, et cetera. And you did mention depression being a part of it, which obviously is gonna be a huge part of patients requiring palliative care. At what point do you recommend getting psychiatry involved versus palliative care in a patient who's suffering with depression? Well, if somebody just has depression and it's being unmanaged, then yes you need to have a psychiatry referral if it's being unmanaged. But if they have other components and what is basically the reason or the cause of their depression, and if there are other symptoms that are involved that is hampering in the progress of the patient, then yes, then you get palliative. If it's just depression or anxiety alone, then yes, the specialty that is trained for it, which is psychiatry. But if there are other symptoms, then yes, you need palliative. Any other? Just as a quick follow-up to that, I think it, um, when we have patients who have depression, just like she said, depending on the, the reason for their depression or the reason for the worsening of it, a lot of times we see depression related to their illness. And so as you treat their symptoms, even in the situations that were so lovely demonstrated where we are not fixing the underlying problem, but we are helping the symptoms, they have a perception that life is better. And so often that will start to improve those symptoms. So if it doesn't improve those symptoms 
or if we're squirreling with a lot of medications, especially if somebody already sees a psychiatrist or saw a psychiatrist recently, we're going to make sure that we address that with them. And also if any of the medications that we are using might interfere with something or, um, you know, even changing QTC intervals or whatnot. But one of the things, for example, is using um, olanzapine or Zyprexa for um, chemo-induced nausea vomiting. That could be really important in a patient who has different psych meds. So we try to look out for those patients and um, have our own um, flags to wave early to say, hey, we may need to involve somebody else in this care, even if it's just a curbside or a phone call. Um, because one of the benefits is hopefully not having to have people go multiple different places to address things that we can help with. Thank you, Dr. Other questions? And just to give a plug for the licensed clinical social workers that are both in-house and in our uh, palliative clinic and in our home pals. So that is something that we help with is um, managing those anxiety and depression. Yeah, and that's Sometimes. the palliative so. team that we have here, the social worker, the chaplain, the ABPs, the MDs, everybody. It's an interdisciplinary approach. Any other questions? Any other questions? Hold on just a moment. Um, excellent presentation. I just had a question. Um, in your research for palliative care, did you come across like anything about like education from a medical school perspective or even residency training? Like, is in, has there been a, more of a push for palliative care to be incorporated into like IM programs? Um, as one thing that we've always come across is sometimes physicians have difficulty with goals of care conversations. I did not come across, or actually, I did not look into that data. My entire focus was based on um, early palliative care, and I came across the data for mostly cancer patients. But I think it should be integrated at least in during our residency, internal medicine residency. I know right now we just have the option of opting for it as an elective, but I personally believe uh, that it should be incorporated as a rotation, kind of a mandatory rotation, but yeah. Anything else? Now I have it. Um, but that being said, not just the, the palliative attendings and the other IDT members, the fellows are going to be here to help educate as well. So what we're hoping for is, I realize there's a, um, a mass influx of folks wanting a palliative rotation, and we really appreciate that. We're very flattered. Um, and we're working on trying to accommodate that better. Um, but the more programs that we have, it's a little harder to fit in that many rotations. So when we have the fellows as these master teachers on our service, we're going to be using them to help teach, um, hopefully to help give formal lectures and things like that, but also to help teach on the one-to-one -one level when you have patients together. Hey, come, we'll come do a family meeting with you. Hey, we'll come help you do that and um, help learn on kind of the smaller scale level there too, while we're working out a way to get more rotations in. Anything else? I'm open for consults in about a month's time on this, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you.